Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When a movie is successful, someone somewhere will inevitably want more. And that's when we get a sequel. If that follow-up does well, then the sequel gets a sequel. And if that film has traction, well, then you reach the level of movie franchise. We've seen many movie franchises over the decades, Star Wars and Star Trek being among the most famous. But then we have all the Fast and Furious films, Harry Potter, Rocky, Mission Impossible, Planet of the Apes, Toy Story, Lord of the Rings, and so on. And I haven't even mentioned the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is something like three dozen movies, and then the DC Extended Universe, which has almost 30. Studios and producers love movie franchises because they're reliable sources of revenue for, well, basically forever. Fans will flock to any new release while they're still binging in all the older movies. And don't even get me started on things like merchandising. What's the oldest movie franchise? That would probably be King Kong. The first Kong movie came out in 1933. The first Alice in Wonderland movie came out the same year. The Wizard of Oz fits our definition. There have been four films since 1939. What else? Well, Godzilla. First one was 1954. And then we finally get to James Bond. There have been 27 Bond films, as I write this, starting with Dr. No in 1962. Box office grosses are now around 14 billion U.S. dollars. And that's just the movies. Then we have the music. There were few crossover points between music and film that are more prestigious than being tapped to do the theme for a James Bond movie. Every time a new chapter in the franchise is announced, tenders go out for someone to do the theme, and the competition is furious. So that sounds like there's some interesting music history here, and there is. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and that music is so familiar that it's a cliché bordering on parody, but far from it. That is quite possibly the most famous movie theme of all time. Star Wars fans might want to debate that, but it's certainly been around for longer. 1962, to be exact. The composer was a guy named Monty Norman. His inspiration was a song called Good Sign, Bad Sign, which is sung by Indian characters on the island of Trinidad, 
in a musical based on a book called A House for Mr. Biswas. It came out at around the same time, 1962. Now, listen to this, and you'll hear it immediately. I was born with this unlucky sneeze, and what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round. So, plagiarizing himself a little bit, Monty moved the melody to a twangy guitar. He presented it to the producers of the film, who, well, they didn't like it. So, they gave it to composer John Barry, who arranged it for orchestra, and boom! There's your classic. It was born. That theme, simply known as the James Bond theme, has been used in every Bond movie, and Monty has collected royalties. Last I heard, Monty was living in England and still cashing checks at the age of 94. But while that theme is the same for every Bond film, the song for the very elaborate title sequence changes with each movie. And getting that commission is considered to be one of the coolest things that can happen to any artist. So what we're going to do here is run through all the Bond title themes from 1962 forward. That being said, the first movie, Dr. No!, didn't have a title song other than the James Bond theme, arranged in a big Broadway old-school movie score sort of way by John Barry. From Russia with Love in 1963 had an instrumental as a title theme done by Barry, but buried in the film and over the closing credits is a song called From Russia with Love. It's by Matt Monroe, an English singer in the mold of Frank Sinatra. Much wiser since It wasn't until Goldfinger in 1964 that we have a proper bespoke James Bond title song. John Barry had a hand in this, as did Anthony Newley, a British song and dance man who was admired greatly by a young David Bowie. The singer is Shirley Bassey, a Welsh singer who started in the theatre. Goldfinger He's the man, the man with a That became a top 40 hit, even though Harry Salzman, one of the producers of the film, absolutely hated it. Let me quote the note he sent back. That's the worst uh, Blanken song I've ever heard in my Blanken life. He wanted another theme song, but there was no time, so it stayed in the film. It would also be the first of three Shirley Bassey Bond themes, and we'll get to them in due course. Barry went to Wales again for 1965's Thunderball, getting Tom Jones to sing the title theme. Alright, I know, I know, nothing, nothing very rock and roll so far, but you know, this was the 60s, and the movie business was still very conservative. The next movie in the series was You Only Live Twice in 1967. Nancy Sinatra, daughter of Frank, got the gig. A different version ended up being something of a hit single, but this is what moviegoers heard. You live twice, so it seems. And that was it, apparently, for Sean Connery as Bond. Or so we thought. Anyway, in 1969, we got On Her Majesty's Secret Service, starring George Lazenby. He lasted one film. John Barry wrote something wordless for the opening sequence, but then jazz great Louis Armstrong was credited with the secondary theme, We Have All the Time in the World. We have all the time 
Like I said, Lazenby lasted just that one movie, and then Sean Connery was brought back because, uh, well, because Sean Connery. There was one more traditional style Bond theme, and it was for Diamonds Are Forever in 1971. Shirley Bassey was called back. Diamonds are forever. They are all I need to please me. So there's a summary of the title sequence music for the first seven Bond films. When Connery finally quit for good, not except for that one movie outside the traditional Bond universe, Roger Moore became the third actor to play Bond for 1973's Live and Let Die. This apparently prompted a rethink when it came to the title theme music. Maybe it was finally time for a rock song to open the film. Producer Harry Salzman wanted Shirley Bassey again. Remember, he hated her in the beginning. Or, he thought, maybe American singer Thelma Houston. Co-producer Albert Broccoli had this idea of getting Paul McCartney to write the song. He sent Macca a copy of the book, Live and Let Die, and he liked it. And then he wrote the song in about a day. And he had it recorded in a week, all during the sessions for McCartney's Red Rose Speedway album. The recording took place at Air Studios, which was built and run by George Martin above Oxford Circus in London. And Martin agreed to produce the sessions, marking this as the first time since the end of the Abbey Road sessions that he got to work with a Beatle. When it was done, George Martin went to the producers and said, look, we've got a very good theme song for you, but the only way you're going to get it is if you use Paul's version as the title sequence. Otherwise, go find someone else for your little movie. So running out of time, Salzman and Broccoli said, okay, fine, 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 you win. And despite some very tortured grammar in the lyrics, I mean, in this ever-changing world in which we live in, that, that does not work <laughs> in any grammatical English. This became a major hit worldwide. And if you ask me, this is still the best Bond theme ever. By the way, the percussionist on that song is Ray Cooper, who has worked with everyone from Elton John to Pink Floyd to Eric Clapton. Now, you would think that having such a global success with a rock song for the title theme, that the producers would continue with the idea for the next movie in 1974, which was The Man with the Golden Gun. Well, no, it was, it was back to the old ways. That's Scottish singer Lulu doing that. She was uh, quite the star in the UK through the 60s and early 70s. But that song was the first Bond theme not to chart anywhere. It was a total stiff. The next four Bond themes were also sung by women. There was Carly Simon for Nobody Does It Better in 1977. Nobody does it better. Shirley Bassey again for Moonraker in 1979. Gina Easton with For Your Eyes Only in 1981. And Rita Coolidge with All Time High in 1983. 
All very mature, adult contemporary, you know? Maybe all these songs fit Roger Moore's bonds and the tone of those films a lot better than a rock song. You know, those films were a lot more jokey than what we saw with Connery. But there was a seventh appearance by Roger Moore in 1985, and the producers decided to switch things up again. Now, in 85, Duran Duran was probably the hottest band in the world. Meanwhile, the Bond franchise was getting a little stale. Maybe they could draw some new waivers into the theaters if they got the Duranis to do the theme. Actually, it was bass player Roger Taylor who had the idea. He was drunk at a party, and he wandered up to producer Cubby Broccoli and said something very close to this. When are you going to get someone decent to do one of your theme songs? And believe it or not, that approach actually worked. And it worked well. Duran Duran came up with the bones of the song, and John Barry took it from there, using a 60-piece orchestra. The theme for A View to a Kill became the only Bond theme to reach number one on the American singles charts. And it also became one of Duran Duran's biggest hits overall. When it came time to find someone to do the theme for the next Bond film, the producers decided that the new wave sound was definitely the way to go. There was a new Bond in the form of Timothy Dalton. And to sing the song, Norway's Aha was hired. They were gigantic in 1987, so this made sense, I guess. Guitarist Paul Wakatar and John Barry worked on it together, and when it was released in June of 1987, it became a sizable hit, especially, surprise, in Norway. So there are the first 25 years of Bond theme music. Some hits, some misses, and at least one certifiable all-time classic with Paul McCartney and Wings, Live and Let Die. However, there are still decades to go. Ten more Bond songs coming up. This is a retrospective of all the songs we've heard during the title sequence of James Bond movies since Dr. No showed up in 1962. We're now up to 1989 and licensed to kill another Timothy Dalton as Bond project. This was the first title song to not involve John Barry. He'd moved on from scoring Bond films. This one was co-written by Narada Michael Walden, who had a rep with the R&B crowd, having worked with The Temptations and Lionel Richie and Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. Gladys Knight was brought in to sing, and the song was a hit, but only in Europe. Nothing in America, and it reached number 79 in Canada. Very 80s with sound and production. There was a long gap between License to Kill and the next installment, which was Goldeneye in 1995. This was Pierce Brosnan's first spin as Bond. The producers approached Tina Turner to do the theme, and then she was connected with Bono and the Edge of U2 to write the song. So they did. So, uh, yeah, this is a U2 song disguised as a Tina Turner performance. Tina Turner singing Goldeneye, which was written by Bono and The Edge. Another decent hit in parts of the world, including top 10 in the UK and top 5 in a bunch of European countries. Pierce Brosnan was back for 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies, and things got a little weird when it came to the theme. 
This seems to be the first time the producers posted a tender for the position of theme song singer. They spoke with a bunch of people, including the Cardigans, Katie Lang, Cheryl Crow, and a couple of others. At first, the winner was Katie Lang with a song called Tomorrow Never Dies. But then Cheryl Crow submitted her song, and the producers couldn't choose. They wanted both. So in the end, Cheryl's song got the title sequence, the opening sequence, and KD's song was renamed Surrender and run over the closing credits. One of the interesting things about the theme for the next film, The World Is Not Enough from 1999, was that it was partially recorded in Vancouver. Okay, wait, hold on. Better back up here. Producers, again, put the song out for tender. Pulp was approached. So was Amy Mann. But the producers wanted sort of an electronica sound. Again, that's where modern music was in 1999. At the same time, though, the song also had to have that big orchestral arrangement because, uh, well, that was that was the way it was done. All Bond movies had that. Anything else, and it wasn't properly Bond, you know? So composer David Arnold was hired to sort things out. He wrote the theme, tested demos with producers, and they approved. Calls went out to Bjork, Melanie C. of the Spice Girls, Jameer Kwai, and Robbie Williams, and they were all rejected by the producers. Arnold then called up Shirley Manson and offered it to her and Garbage, and she nearly stroked out when she got the offer because it had always been her dream to sing a Bond theme. I mean, she is from Scotland, just like Sean Connery. There was an ugly plagiarism charge from a couple of songwriters who said this song sounded too much like a theme that they'd written for The Thomas Crown Affair, but not used. Like the Bond films, that was also the property of MGM Studios, so, you know, they figured something happened internally. That charge was eventually rejected by the courts, and in the end, Garbage and the Bond people had another solid hit. By now, you've probably noticed some commonalities in many of the Bond themes. Most are in a minor key. There's almost always a forbidding serious tone. And like I said a few minutes ago, there has to be some kind of big orchestral arrangement. That's the major bit of continuity. Without that, the producers believe that the theme could be for any action movie. And and that just won't do in the world of Bond. This template only became more pronounced through the 90s and 2000s, including with the 20th Bond film, Die Another Day, from 2002. The producers wanted the theme to be a hit in the United States, something that did not happen with Garbage and The World Is Not Enough. So their first choice for a singer was Madonna, and she accepted. She believed that Bond needed to go techno, so... And it was a hit, the highest charting Bond song since Duran Duran's A View to a Kill in 1985, which makes the choice for the next Bond singer rather interesting. In 2006, we got a new Bond in the form of Daniel Craig. An executive felt that the theme for Casino Royale needed a strong male singer, so she called Chris Cornell. He thought she was pitching him a chance to sing a secondary song that would show up somewhere in the movie. But when he was told, no, 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 this is for the title sequence, he was shocked. Now, Chris was a big fan of the Connery movies, 
but wasn't into what the franchise had become with Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. But after seeing some rough cuts of the film with the new guy, Daniel Craig, he liked what he saw. So yeah, they had a deal. Cornell's song is a co-write with David Arnold, the composer for the film's score. Chris wrote his bits at his apartment in Paris, trying to come up with something new yet in keeping with the Bond tradition. And one song that he listened to over and over again was Tom Jones's Thunderball, the theme from 1965. He also listened to Live and Let Die a lot. That's from 1973. And it worked. The song was a critical success, and it was even nominated for a Grammy. We've now covered 21 Bond films and the title sequence songs. There are still a few more to go, and I want to play you at least one song from a big band that had their submission rejected. Up until 2008, every single Bond title sequence song had featured a solo singer or a band. Then came Quantum of Solace. After rumors of Amy Winehouse being picked, the job fell to Jack White and Alicia Keys. This is the first duet in Bond theme history. Jack wrote the song, played all the instruments, and produced everything. Key supplied the vocals. The video was shot in Toronto while Jack was promoting his guitar documentary, It Might Get Loud, and Keys was there with her film, The Secret Life of Bees. This was the result. Jack called it Another Way to Die. Another Way to Die from Quantum of Solace, which wasn't much of a hit in the U.S., but it was a massive success across the U.K. and Europe. Top 15 in Canada, too. However, does Another Way to Die fit the mold of the traditional Bond theme? Not really, which kind of bugged the purists, which explains the direction of the next theme. In 2012, Adele was one of the biggest selling artists in the universe with her 21 album, and the producers wanted her After reading the script, she agreed. It's about as modern a classic Bond theme as you can get. It had all the elements of past themes. Minor key, a 60 sort of jazz feel, a dangerous vibe, big orchestration, and a powerful female singer. And the co-writer of the song, a guy named Paul Epworth, spent months listening to themes from the past. What was the thing that made a Bond theme a Bond theme? What did they have all in common? It turns out that if you dig into music theory, they all contain a variation of something called a minor ninth. And once he figured that out, things started falling into place. The movie, of course, was Skyfall. That song took 18 months to make from the time the producers approached Adele until it was handed in. The next Bond theme was awarded to English singer Sam Smith. This is for the movie Spectre in 2015. Commercially, it only did well in the UK, but was a flop everywhere else. But then again, it did win a Golden Globe and an Academy Award, so, you know, go figure. Okay, so it won a bunch of awards. But let's remember that Radiohead submitted a song for Spectre as well. There were rumors that they'd gotten the job, 
British bookies had to stop making bets because so many people were putting down money on a 10 to 1 odds against Radiohead getting the gig. The first submission from Radiohead was called Man of War, a track that had been hanging around since the 1990s, and a song that had been written with Bond movies in mind. Now, the song was good, but because it wasn't written just for the movie, it wouldn't have been eligible for any original song awards. So, on that basis, it was rejected. So, the band went back to work, writing and recording Spectre during the sessions for the Moonshape Pool album. They threw everything they had into this song. But in the end, it was also rejected because the producers thought it was too melancholy to open the film. Uh, all right, really? Maybe it's just me, but but I like the Radiohead Bond theme better. Radiohead's rejected theme for the movie Spectre. They ended up releasing that as a free download through SoundCloud when the movie opened. And it's also available in a few other places as B-sides and bonus tracks. This brings us to the most recent Bond film, No Time to Die. It was supposed to have been in theaters in November 2019, but then for some reason was pushed back to February 2020, some marketing thing. And then it was pushed back again to April 2020 to get, you know, with the spring release schedule. But then COVID. So it was postponed again until November 12th of 2020. But COVID was still raging, so it was held back for almost another year. The UK got the film early, as usual, September the 30th. The North American release is October the 8th. And in amongst all these postponements was Billie Eilish's theme song. She and Brother Phineas wrote and recorded it over three days on a tour bus in late 2019. It was recorded in England using a 70-piece orchestra. Gotta have that, right? The song was then released on February 13th, 2020 to coincide with the first re-release date of the movie. But the movie didn't open in February 2020, so this Bond theme just kind of hung out there for 18 months with no film in the theaters. Meanwhile, though, it somehow managed to win a Grammy Award for Best Song Written for Visual Media. Oh, by the way, Billie Eilish was 18 at the time this song was written and recorded, and that makes her the youngest person ever to sing a Bond theme. So there's a summary of more than two dozen songs used for Bond title sequences from 1962 through to 2021. We did miss one, however. In 1983, Sean Connery came back to play Bond in Never Say Never Again, which was outside the normal Bond universe. It was based on Thunderball from 1965, but done with a different producer who had been fighting to make this movie for decades and the reviews in the box office were pretty good. However, the music did not reach Bond standards. Does anyone remember who sang the main theme for Never Say Never Again? It was a song called Never Say Never Again, and it was by Lanny Hall, who was married to Herb Alpert, the A and A&M Records. She had a fine career on her own, but she's probably the least remembered singer of a Bond song. Maybe if Bonnie Tyler who was originally offered the gig, had taken it. 
There's always more at my website. Check it out at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day with music news and information. There's the free daily newsletter too. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and all email is welcome to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Cross. Alan Cross. Okay, sorry about that, but when else am I going to have a chance to do that? You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 